Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Beacon Island is a tiny patch of land that's part of a chain of 122 small islands and coral reefs strung along Australia's western coast. But Beacon Island is particularly noteworthy because of a tragic event that occurred there back in 1692. An event that has given the island its unofficial nickname, Murder Island. The Batavia was a newly commissioned vessel owned by the Dutch East India Company that set sail from the Netherlands in 1628, with a cargo that included a vast amount of gold, silver, and jewels. The ship was commanded by senior merchant Francisco Palsert. His second-in-command was the skipper, Arian Jacobs. I know it's kind of an unusual arrangement, but back in those days... It was actually the company's money guy who got to give the orders on the ship, rather than its captain. Another member of the crew was a junior merchant named Geronimus Cornelius, a bankrupt pharmacist who was fleeing the Netherlands because of his heretical beliefs. It was an uneasy voyage, marked by constant squabbling among the men. And in 1629, Cornelius and Jacobs hatched a plan to stage a mutiny and seize the ship for themselves. On June 4th, 1629, Cornelius, Jacobs, and his fellow mutineers managed to steer the ship away from the rest of the fleet, only to smash into a reef near Beacon Island. Most of the 341 passengers and crew managed to swim for shore, but 40 of them weren't so lucky and drowned. Or perhaps they were the lucky ones, considering the terrible things that happened next. When they finally reached shore, the survivors made a grim assessment of their situation. There was no fresh water source to be found, and almost no food either, except for a few stray sea lions and seagulls. Realizing they were all in dire straits, Pelsert took Jacobs and 35 other men on the ship's longboat in search of help, food, and water. They would eventually find their way to Batavia, what we know now as Jakarta. But by the time they got there, it was much, much too late. Once the commander was gone, Cornelius took this opportunity to seize control once and for all. He and his group of mutineers began by sending anyone who might oppose their plans to other islands in search of water. This included a small group of soldiers led by a man named Webby Hayes. When only women, children, and those too weak to oppose him remained on Beacon Island, Cornelius and his men got to work slaughtering everyone. In fact, Cornelius's mutineers got caught up in such a horrendous wave of bloodlust that for a time, it seemed like they might never stop. Men, women, children, it didn't matter who, were all murdered by stabbing, drowning, strangling, or beating them to death. 
Cornelius commanded that only 45 people should be allowed to live in order to make their meager supplies last as long as possible. Among those he chose to live were a few women he kept alive in order for them to be repeatedly raped and tortured by the men. In total, 125 people were massacred within a few days. While all this was going on, the group of soldiers led by Webby Hayes had actually managed to find both food and water on other islands. Initially, they were unaware of the carnage that was occurring on Beacon Island. But when they encountered a few survivors who managed to escape, they organized themselves and gathered as many makeshift weapons as they could devise from the ship's wreckage. They built themselves a small fort out of limestone and coral blocks and readied themselves against the mutineers they knew would soon be coming. When Cornelius learned that the men he'd sent away had actually found food and water, he went with his own men to try to overtake the soldiers. However, Webby Hayes and his soldiers easily defeated Cornelius's group, and after a few unsuccessful skirmishes, Hayes and his men would eventually manage to take Cornelius hostage. The other mutineers regrouped and tried again unsuccessfully to take the soldiers' fort. When Commander Pelsert finally returned with a rescue party, he was horrified by all the carnage that had occurred in his absence. Pelsert conducted a trial of the mutineers right there on the island. The worst of the mutineers were subsequently taken to Seal Island and executed. Cornelius and several others had both hands chopped off before being hanged. A few of those deemed to be only minor offenders were marooned on mainland Australia, never to be heard from again. The last remaining mutineers were taken back to Batavia, where they were either flogged, hanged, or broken on the wheel. Even Pelsard himself did not escape punishment. A board of inquiry determined that he had demonstrated a lack of authority that allowed the mutiny to occur under his watch. As a result, his financial assets were seized, and he died a broken man within a year. Today, even four centuries later, archaeologists are still digging up the mass graves of the Beacon Island Massacre. It's believed to be the first, and still one of the worst, mass killings in Australian history. As terrible as the story of the massacre is, it's not the only horrific story to emerge from such tiny remote islands. There are literally thousands of islands scattered around the globe, many of which have their own stories to tell. Stories of murder, of mayhem, and of the restless dead. I'm Nate Hale, coming to you live with my faithful volleyball companion, and this is The Conspirators. The island of Barbados was once a British colony. A few centuries ago, the economy was largely based on growing tobacco and cotton. And that work was done by the back-breaking labor of imported black slaves. In 1724, a man named James Elliot built a stone vault in the cemetery attached to Christ Church Parish, but never used it. The vault itself is fairly unremarkable looking. It's a stone structure built below ground, and accessible by a short flight of stairs. 
It was purchased back in the early 1800s by the Chase family when Mary Ann Chase died at only two years old. The little girl was placed in the vault inside a lead coffin alongside the vault's only other resident, who themselves had been interred in a wooden coffin. But tragedy would seem to follow the Chase family. A few years later, Mary Ann's sister Dorcas would starve herself to death. She too was placed in the tomb next to her little sister. By most accounts, Thomas Chase was not a nice man. He was a cruel slave master, and in general, a rather unpleasant fellow to be around. But he did love his family, and the grief of losing two of his daughters proved to be too much for him to bear. About a month after Dorcas's death, Thomas committed suicide. However, when the burial team removed the thick marble slab that enclosed the vault, they were met with a disturbing sight. All three coffins, which had once been neatly lined up inside the tomb, were now tossed around the vault and were standing upright. There were no signs of human tampering, and none of the other vaults in the cemetery showed any similar signs of disarray, which would seem to discount the possibility of an earthquake or other natural causes being the culprit. Unable to find an answer, the burial team moved the coffins back into their original position and added Thomas Chase's to the group. After that, rumors began to spread about eerie events surrounding the tomb. Stories persisted over the next few years of terrifying noises that emanated from the crypt and of horses that would run away terrified and drown themselves when they got too close to the vault. But a few years later, when the vault was unsealed again to add another coffin, it was discovered that once again, the coffins were all scattered around the room. This time the governor, Lord Cumbermere, decided he wanted to get to the bottom of what was going on. He ordered that a layer of sand be scattered around the tomb's floor in order to reveal the footprints of anyone who might be sneaking into the vault and moving the coffins around. Then he pressed his signet ring into the fresh cement they used to reseal the tomb. But curiosity would eventually get the best of the island's residents, and in 1820 they decided to open the vault again to see if anything else had happened. A crowd of curious onlookers stood by as the vault was opened, and people were shocked to discover Colonel Chase's coffin leaning upright next to the chamber door, and the other coffins all moved around again. No footprints were visible on the sandy floor. To this day, no one knows what caused the coffins to move inside the Chase Vault. Although records do exist showing that each of the deaths described did occur, some people have suggested that the stories were just folklore dreamed up by the superstitious locals. Other theories range from rambunctious poltergeists to flooding inside the what was believed to be a watertight vault that pushed the buoyant coffins around. Eventually, the coffins would all be removed and reburied elsewhere. Today, the vault stands empty, filled only with the ghost stories of what once occurred. Some island horror stories don't need to involve ghosts in order to be disturbing. George's Island is situated off the coast of Labrador, and back in 1876, the island was favored mostly by fishermen. But in that year, the sailing schooner Walrus was blown toward the island during a storm. Believing they were about to crash into the rocks, 
The ship's captain ordered the crew onto the lifeboat. But the lifeboat the men were all in capsized in the rough waters, and all but one of them drowned. At least that's the story he told once he finally managed to return to the mainland. But a few months later, a group of fishermen made their way to George's Island. And that's where they discovered a grisly scene that told a very different story. Close to shore, they found three bodies, all badly mutilated. They were all decapitated and their heads were nowhere to be found. They searched the island for anyone else, only to find the remains of a camp further inland, with a makeshift tent crafted out of one of the schooner's sails. There, next to the tent, lay another body. This one still had its head attached, but the skull had been cleaved open with numerous axe blows. The fisherman's employer later returned to the island to bury the bodies. He found some additional clues, including a woman's photograph and some mostly destroyed papers. Everyone assumed these were the bodies of the walrus's crew. But when they went looking for the lone survivor who claimed the others drowned, he was nowhere to be found. Elsewhere around the globe, if you were looking for other islands you probably never want to visit, then you need only look about 20 miles off the coast of Sao Paulo, Brazil, to a place known as Ilha de Quimeda Grande. It's a lush green island of about 4.6 million square feet. It also just happens to be home to the only place on Earth where one of the most venomous snakes on Earth, a reptile known as the Golden Lancehead Viper, lives. It's believed that about 11,000 years ago, rising sea levels separated the island from the rest of Brazil, which left the snakes on the island to grow and thrive. Since this would have left the Golden Lancehead's only food source to be fast-moving birds, it's believed that over time, the snakes evolved and developed both a bad attitude and a highly toxic venom that's five times more potent than other snake venoms, and is actually so strong it can melt human flesh. Some estimates say at their peak, there may have been as many as one snake for every three square feet of space on the island. And the place is considered so dangerous that the Brazilian government has banned nearly all travel to the island. The only people who are legally allowed to visit the island are scientists who are permitted to visit annually to study the snakes. Some say that poachers make clandestine trips to the island in order to capture and remove some of the ultra-rare reptiles as well. One story tells of an unlucky fisherman who lost power to his boat before drifting towards the island. He went ashore unaware of the dangers all around him, only for his dead body to be discovered later covered in snake bites. Another tale tells of the island's last lighthouse keeper, who, according to legend, was forced to flee in terror one night when the snakes managed to crawl in through their home's windows. The bodies of the lighthouse keeper and his family were found scattered around the island. In recent years, clear-cutting and disease has ravaged much of the viper population, bringing it down to approximately 15% of its peak. Nonetheless, Snake Island is still a place you probably never want to visit under any circumstances. If snakes don't bother you, then might I direct you a little further north to a tiny island amid Mexico's Xochimilco canals that's home to another disturbing sight that's something straight out of a horror movie. Welcome to La Isla de las Muñecas, the island 
of the dolls. The legend of the island goes that back around 1950, a man named Don Julian Santana Barrera was living the life of a hermit on the island when one day he made a tragic discovery. He found the body of a little girl floating near the island. Today, some people remain doubtful whether this event really happened, since no evidence seems to exist to prove the discovery of the body. Some people say Barrera was delusional and simply dreamed up the discovery. But whether the little girl was real or not, what the man did next was very, very real. Soon after finding the dead child, Barrera found a child's doll floating in the water. In order to honor the girl's spirit, Barrera took the doll and hung it in a tree, and it wouldn't be the last. One doll led to another, and another, and another. Each day, Barrera added more and more dolls to the trees across the island. Many of the dolls were broken and in poor shape. Some of the more intact dolls Barrera dressed up with bits of discarded clothing. Soon, the entire island was covered in broken doll heads and partially intact dolls, hanging from trees or impaled on stakes. Even at their newest, the dolls were in pretty terrible shape. Everywhere you go, broken dolls stare at you with half-empty eye sockets. Their hair hangs and straggles. Their skin is scabbed and cracked and flaking away. At one point, Barrera even began trading homegrown fruit and vegetables for even more dolls to add to his collection. It's thought that there are currently around 1,500 dolls situated all around the island. Over the years, Barrera proved to be a surprisingly gracious host, inviting people to come to the island and look around at his macabre memorial to the spirit realm. Then in 2001, Don Julian Barrera was found dead. While some people say he died of a heart attack, others claim he drowned in the same place where he found the dead girl years before. Today, a white cross stands near the location where his body was found. And the legend of the island of dolls lives on. It's become a minor tourist destination with visitors venturing there to see the dolls and sometimes bring fresh ones to add to the mix. Some people have come back with stories of hearing strange whispers around the island and some have even claimed to have seen the doll heads turn and look at them. But even without all the ghost stories, there's no question the island is a creepy place to be, especially at night. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Yet even still, the Island of the Dolls is not the creepiest island on the planet. Not by a long shot. 
If you had to look at all the islands on Earth and pick one with the scariest history of them all, there's one location in particular that jumps to the head of the pack. It's a tiny islet in the Venice Lagoon, near the eastern coast of northern Italy. A tiny island that's the final resting place for tens of thousands of plague victims, as well as residents of a former mental institution and their deranged doctor who committed suicide. A tiny island that some people claim may be the most haunted place in the world. The earliest known writing about Poveglia Island dates back to the 5th century, when it's described as a safe haven from Alaric the Goth and Attila the Hun during the waning days of the Roman Empire. Poveglia is one of 166 such tiny islets strung along the Italian coast. These tiny scraps of land were so difficult to navigate around and so easily defensible, most invading armies simply left them alone. It's believed the island may have been first populated as early as 2000 BCE by a group known as the Eugenae, who predate Italy itself. Around 864, the governor, or Doge, was killed. Seizing the opportunity, 200 of the man's slaves fled to Poveglia Island, hoping to remain quietly free. But in 1379, when war broke out with neighboring Genoa, officials forced the residents to move to a different island in the Venetian Lagoon. They then turned the location into a military outpost, building a large octagonal fort in the lagoon armed with naval artillery to protect the coast. But the military left, and for the next couple centuries, the island remained largely uninhabited. Occasionally, plans would be discussed to move different undesirable populations to the island, but none actually came to fruition until the mid-1500s when it was decided the island would be the ideal dumping ground for victims of the bubonic plague. Even before the bubonic plague reached European shores, rumors long persisted among sailors of a great pestilence that had ravaged trade routes throughout the Near and Far East. In October 1347, when a dozen Genoese trading ships docked at the Sicilian port of Messina after a long voyage through the Black Sea, the people standing along the docks were met with a horrifying surprise. Most of the men aboard the ships were dead, and the few that were still alive showed signs of a terrible illness unlike anything anyone had ever seen before. They were all delirious from fever and unable to keep food down. Worst of all, the men were covered in massive black boils that oozed pus and death, giving the plague its nickname, the Black Death. The Sicilian authorities ordered the plague-riddled ships to leave the harbor immediately, but it was too late. In just five years, the Black Death would kill more than 20 million people throughout Europe, roughly one-third of the continent's population. By 1348, half the population of Venice was dead because of the plague. By now, the remaining Venetians were able to deduce how the plague was spreading, but that still left the problem of how to prevent it from spreading any further. Officials determined the only possible course of action was to physically separate the dead and dying from the uninfected. Two massive burial pits were created outside the main city, but the Black Death was such an efficient killer that those two pits soon overflowed with corpses. In order to manage the never-ending supply of infected bodies, the Venetian officials then ordered the transport of more plague victims to two of the islands in the lagoon, San Oresmo and the San Martino de Strada. 
In the early 1400s, the Venetians tried something new and invented a type of hospital for the infected known as a lazaretto. The first such hospital, the Lazaretto Vecchio, was established on one of the small islands in the lagoon. During a recent excavation, archaeologists discovered more than 1,500 skeletons buried in pits around the island. In fact, if all that isn't disturbing enough, one of the bodies dug up on the island was found to have a brick shoved in its mouth. You see, whoever buried them thought they were a supernatural creature they would have called a shroud eater, what we would have described as a vampire. Numerous other islands, including Poveglia Island, eventually began being used as quarantine zones for plague victims. In fact, the term quarantine actually originates from the Venetian phrase Quaranta giorni, which means 40 days. The amount of time ships coming into the harbor needed to remain isolated before they would be allowed to dock. The plague was so deadly, and medical treatment was so limited at the time, that the only thing they could do was to separate the sick from the healthy and hope for the best. Between the 1570s and 1630s, barges were used to dump mass numbers of the sick and dying onto Paveglia Island. If you showed even the mildest symptoms of the plague, you could be forcibly removed from your home and forced to live out your remaining days on the island. Tens of thousands of bodies were burned on the island to prevent further spread of the plague. In fact, there's a long-standing rumor that as much as 50% of the soil on Poveglia Island is composed of the ashes of the dead. Since the island has never been properly excavated, it's impossible to say just how many people's remains are there. In 1777, the Venetian Magistrate of Health took control of the island and turned it into a checkpoint for ships coming into the lagoon. Any boat or ship headed for Venice needed to undergo a rigorous inspection process or any sign that it might be carrying the Black Death. During the 1790s, two vessels failed the inspections, and once again, Poveglia Island became home to a quarantine colony, until the hospital was finally shut down in the 1800s. It's estimated that over the years, Poveglia Island has been host to as many as 160,000 plague sufferers. And even after the plague victims were gone, the hospital still stood on the island. In the early 20th century, the Italian government repurposed the buildings as a place to house the mentally ill. As if the stories about the plague victims weren't bad enough, rumors spread that the head doctor began using the mental patients as guinea pigs, including his own variety of crude lobotomies. So the legend goes that the doctor eventually became so riddled with guilt over what he had done that he committed suicide by throwing himself off the bell tower that stands at the island's entrance. An even darker version of the story says that the doctor was so troubled by the voices of the dead telling him to do terrible things that it drove him mad and forced him to kill himself. Some of the locals across the lagoon claim that at night they can still hear the tower's bell chime, even though the bell was removed many years ago. By the mid-1970s, the island was completely abandoned, and soon nature began to overtake the decrepit buildings. Most of the Venetian mainlanders refused to travel near the island, choosing instead to ignore it. Whereas many of the locals will tell you there is nothing to fear about Poveglia Island, still others swear the place is cursed. On a few occasions, some ghost hunting shows and other brave explorers have visited the island, 
and have reported that they've experienced some pretty strange things that can't be easily explained. People who have been to the island often describe the overwhelming sensation of being watched. Some intrepid ghost hunters have come back with stories of being scratched by unknown entities, of being physically shoved into walls by invisible hands, and of hearing the sounds of disembodied moans echoing across the island. In 2014, the island was sold to an Italian businessman, and thus far, no reports have come out about just what he wants to do with the place. Some people have suggested he might want to build a luxury resort on the island, although no such official plans have ever been revealed. Personally, the thought of a luxury hotel on the site where tens of thousands of people died wouldn't exactly entice me to want to stay there. I've seen that movie before, and it never ends well. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. I have a couple of Patreon supporters to thank. Thanks so much to Michael and to my friend Nino over at the Already Gone podcast for helping support the show. Just a reminder, The Conspirators is both a Patreon account and a donate button on our website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. I'll post a link to our Patreon in the show notes. Patrons of the show get access to all sorts of rewards, including t-shirts, stickers, magnets, thank you cards signed by yours truly, and of course access to our patron-exclusive minisodes. Something else you can do to support the show is subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Each of your reviews really helps us out in Apple's rankings. Our show has regularly been making into the top 100 of Apple's history podcasts, and hopefully we can keep this tradition going. Thanks to each and every one of you who has helped to make the show a success. If you're not on Apple, not to worry. We're also available on Stitcher, Google Play, and your favorite podcast app. I hope you'll join us again next time. <laughs>